Welcome, traveler, to Dungeons and Dialectics, the synthesis of tabletop role-playing games, philosophy, and theology. Whoa, whoa, Matt, uh, where are we? I think this is another world. Another world? Another world. You mean this is an Earth-69? No, I think this is Earth-1, because it's the more important Earth. Ah, interesting. (laughs) Though I I resent that, the implication that Earth-69 is less important than Earth-1. It's less important, but it's far more erotic. Ah, yes, Earth-69 is a very erotic place. Oh, it looks like, judging by all this equipment that's set up in this recording studio, that that in Earth-1, Matt and Joe are podcast hosts. Yes, we've been teleported to Earth-1, in which Matt and Joe are pod- very popular podcast hosts. It seems like this is, the, this is the universe in which their destiny is to become famous podcast hosts. And uh, by the looks of their studio, which is very well equipped, uh, they seem to be well on their way. That's correct. They are well on their way to success. Now, maybe, maybe if I... We, we should start by updating the audience that... In our timeline, we're not podcast hosts by trade. Absolutely not. No. I would never host a podcast. I don't even know if I've ever heard a podcast before. I don't know what a podcast is. Podcasts are illegal on Earth-69. <laughs> it's an underground art form. In addition to being highly erotic, Earth-69 is also a totalitarian anti-podcast regime. That's right. Thank God. The multiverse is crazy, let me tell you. Joe Rogan was executed on Earth-69. It's true. He's now a martyr of the Catholic Church. St. Rogan? St. <laughs> Rogan. Yeah. St. Joe. I don't know if I've called him Joe Rogan in a, quite some time. No, that's right. St. Saint, Saint Rogan. Yes, as I understand it, Joe Rogan in this timeline is a very popular podcast host who likes to invite on far-right reactionaries and not be highly critical of them. I don't know anything about Joe Rogan on Earth One except that he is short. He's very short. He's like three feet tall. Yes, but he's also bald, which gives him bonus points. He looks like a chimpanzee. Yes, but a bald chimpanzee, which is a horrifying image. He looks like a hairless chimpanzee. That's terrifying. But, but on but on Earth sixty nine, he had full hair. He did. He did have full hair, a full head of hair, and he was six feet tall. Locks, and he was six feet tall before, of course, he was executed by the state. In addition, on Earth-69, <laughs> Matt and I are actually lovers. That's right. We were loving just before we got teleported here. It's true. I think it was the, the force, the, the orgasmic force of our, our, Love. of our lovemaking, yeah. our passionate affair that, yep. that transported us here. We were having a kinky chlorine rub. I was rubbing him down with chlorine. Exactly. We were just about to set it on fire, too. <laughs> I was rubbing you down with gasoline, and I was going to light you on fire. Before we were teleported here. Yeah. Yeah, it was very it was very erotic. It was very erotic. Very erotic. And while I understand that here, this Matt and Joe of Earth One are not are not lovers, although judging by what I've heard about their podcast, it sounds like they have some substantial romantic ten or sexual tension that is just waiting. I think that's right. Waiting to snap. They have a will they they have a will they won't they relationship. A will they won't they relationship. <laughs> I know. Find out next year on season two of Dungeons and Dialectics. Yeah, well, but we won't find out because we're going to go back to Earth 69 and there won't be any more podcasting. That's true. So maybe we should maybe we should take advantage of the time we have to 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 do the best podcast that Earth One's uh, listeners have ever heard. 
Let's take our freedom into our own hands and record a podcast as though we were Earth One, Joe and Matt, right here and now. I think so. Now, we've already started to talk about some of the 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 things that make Earth 69 Matt and Joe different from Earth One Matt and Joe. But part of me wonders, well, if we're so different, what makes us the same, Matt? Oh man, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean Are you really not sure? I don't know. I, We're both humans. Okay, so that's one thing. <laughs> that's one thing. So basically, Matt and Joe are are just humans. That's the only defining characteristic, and we're equivalent to any other human in any other universe. That's right. Except, of course... That's the only thing that makes us the same. <laughs> that's true. Except, of course, Earth-142, where uh, everybody are mantis shrimps. That's true. I have been working toward a... I, I am told that there's a mantis shrimp version of me in another world. Earth-142. That's right. I just told you. You did tell me. You did tell me. So then maybe it's not that they're he- that we're humans if we're if there is a mat that is a mantis shrimp. That would be a big problem for my view that I just said. That, that would be one. a really big problem. It looks like That'd be a huge problem. Looks like we don't have any easy answer to this and we might need to do an entire podcast episode on alternate worlds. <laughs> <laughs> So it's kind of auspicious that we that we do this this episode today because of course there are two pieces of news that make this topic relevant and interesting to the layperson, Matt. Oh, is that right? Yes. Yes, as you know, just uh just a week ago in our universe, Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness premiered. Oh, it did? It did. It did indeed. And so we've seen our version, which may have some different different uh, set pieces or plot lines than than the version of Earth One, but I think it can be a, a jumping off point for discussion. I think so. Or a useful example. I'm a big Doc Strange fan. Yeah, Doc Strange, as we call him in our timeline. <laughs> yeah. And and secondly, those of you following Dungeons and Dragons news for the past. Uh, several weeks may have seen that the announcement was made that they're coming out with two new campaign settings officially from Wizards of the Coast, Dragonlance, and Spelljammer. Two. 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 Exactly. And so it sort of raises the question, Matt. You know, we have this game. It's called Dungeons and Dragons by many people. But... That, that it is. But there are so many different campaign settings talked about this in a previous episode the reason it's called a campaign setting is of course because this comes out of the war game tradition so you would have a campaign a war campaign and the setting for that campaign was defined in the campaign setting but in dungeons and dragons this one game we have like a million different campaign settings a million different alternate worlds you might say you might say that i might say it in fact i might say it again say it again campaign settings ah are alternate worlds Uh-oh. in Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. So the question is, what makes things across these alternate worlds the same and what makes them different? Well, what even is a world? I literally literally I'm not even I'm not even sure how to answer that. What kind of a question is that? <laughs> what am I? <laughs> is this well, there's okay. I just you have that. the answer, right? I, I read yeah, you have yeah, like yeah. five pages of notes on this. I, well, okay, so I mean it's not is quite as spontaneous as the, the audience is being led to believe. I wrote like six pages of notes, but I had something that's not in my notes, really, that I wanted to oh. briefly bring up, which is just this. That must explain why I didn't know this. When when you hear alternate worlds, like yes. you, the listeners, you, Joe, whomever, um, you probably think like, oh, 
like yeah, like Marvel Comics, there's like all these different dimensions, yeah. with different timelines, but the same characters that lived slightly different lives. Yeah. That's like a very modern way of thinking about alternate worlds. Thank you. And when I say modern, I don't even mean like modern, modern. I mean like the last several hundred years. I mean, uh, in the ancient world, if you said alternate worlds, they might think you were just talking about, in fact, they would think you were talking about like literally different worlds out there in the cosmos, right? Yeah. Uh, Epicurus is famous for saying that there are an infinite number of cosmoi. I think it's cosmoi. It is cosmoi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which means nice. worlds. And that yep. just means, you know, maybe, maybe I don't know, they think that universe is expanding, right? But like the idea would be that they're just never ending numbers of worlds out there in, the, in this universe. Yeah. But now we have a slightly different way of thinking about this. So, Matt, is that just because ancient stuff is like my jam? Yeah. Is this, is this similar to in a lot of ancient cosmologies, the world is depicted as like one in a series of concentric spheres? Right. So we're on Earth and then there's like this is where the idea of like the seventh heaven comes from, is that there are like seven spheres Mm -hmm. surrounding our Earth that are the different heavens. Are those like the alternate worlds you're talking about? Um, I don't know enough about Epicurean cosmology to answer this because I'm not Uh sure anyone does because most of his writings and those of the school are lost thanks to, you know, the fucking Christian wretches who destroyed everything. Did they is this in the Library of Alexandria? Uh, yes, but that's not that's not the problem. But part of the other wait, problem wait, wait. Is- but this is an interesting tie-in to an episode we did just a couple weeks ago when we talked about Cyril of Alexandria. Mm, yeah, he's the one who had the library destroyed. He did. Yeah. Oh, this fucker. I know. Right? I I told you he's not well in the movie Hypatia. He's not depicted in a good light for so good reason. We had the Cyril Matt hierarchy for mm. views about the body. <clears throat> exactly, um, and I think the Matt view just won out. Well, the map view of the body is tied to the idea that we ought to preserve all books, whereas the serial view of having a beautiful... Like, my, my view was that... We have pustules. We have, we'll have wonder, wondrous pus-filled corpses in the resurrection. Yeah. What does that have to do with books? Well, I mean, if you are covered in, in pustules, you'll, it'll be painful to move around, so you'll have a lot of free reading time. Well, I don't see any flaws in that logic. Whereas if you have a beautiful body, you'll, you'll be too busy getting it on. That's true. I mean, if I had a more beautiful body, just imagine I would yeah. burn down the house every other week. That's right. Anyway, um, so I mean, I'm not sure Epicurus would want to endorse that model because it would be infinite in size, right? So if it's infinite in size, I'm not sure what yeah. it means to say that there's a center there. Mm-hmm. Like the universe is infinitely large. I don't know. I don't know either. Um, but anyway, the point is, on his view, yes. There were an infinite number of worlds, but world just meant like what we today would call, you know, planets, celestial bodies, whatever. Whereas now we have a different idea. Yeah. We hear that. Mm-hmm. So in, I know you just said you don't know anything about Epicurean cosmology, but are you saying that he believed in like extraterrestrial life that like the heavenly bodies had life on them? Of course, dude. I don't, I don't know. Maybe. Of course maybe he not. believed in extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial life. What do you think? He was some kind of idiot? No, <laughs> maybe um, the interesting thing. This is an aside, but the interesting thing is he thought that the gods lived between worlds. They didn't live on a world. Ooh. They lived in the interworld, as it's called. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. In um in three point five, you get a similar you get a similar idea. They're called vestiges, mm. which are which they live in between the planes. So there's supposed to be like the space in between the planes. 
and vestiges live there. Same idea. They're not powerful like gods. They're generally pretty weak, but they can be contacted and they give you like little bonus powers. Well, I mean, power and weakness is an interesting thing because for Epicurus, part of his therapeutic program was to argue that the gods didn't care about us at all, so we needn't be afraid of like punishment in some afterlife. Mm-hmm. Mm, right? Or, or reward either. I mean, the point was just to get yeah. you to focus on what um, one theorist calls the pure pleasure of existing in ordinary yeah. life. Not like hedonistic pleasure as we would understand it today, because all of that actually is more painful than pleasurable. His goal yeah. was to attune us to the simple, pure pleasure of just existing in the world. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and so um, one way in which we might be disrupted from that is if we're overly concerned about reward or punishment beyond life. That makes sense. We now have a sort of more primitive understanding, or primeval understanding is maybe a better way of putting it, of what a world is, but since that's not Mm -hmm. what we mean, um, there's going to be two branches to this discussion, right? We're going to be talking about the idea of multiple worlds in... In D and D, but also in philosophy. So, which order, which order do you think we ought to tackle this in? Well, why don't we let's start with D and D, and then we can start using the D and D thing as an example to talk about the other one. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, it'll be easier to get people acclimated if we just talk about the game first. Yeah, yeah. So, as we mentioned in Dungeons and Dragons, if you're not familiar, you have what's called a campaign setting. This tells you everything about the world that you're you're doing the adventuring in. And when you first start out playing, usually it doesn't matter. Like, almost, it doesn't matter. You don't need to actually look through the lore. Well, actually, it does matter, and we'll get to that later. It doesn't matter. It, do, it does matter. But you don't know why it matters until you've played a while. It's, um, we start playing. Like, when I started playing as a kid, I was like, I don't care about the rest of the world. I don't care about the geopolitics of this world. I don't care about the uh, metaphysical assumptions that this world is based on. I'm here because I'm in this town, and the person in the town told me there's a cave with treasure in it. And so I went into the cave and got, like, my ass roasted by a dragon. I was, like, seven years old. You got spit roasted by a dragon? (laughs) No, my ass was roasted by a dragon. That's what I said. No, no, no. I, I was seven years old, Matt. This is an inappropriate... I didn't hear that part. Great. This is the first time I played D&D. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. It's seven. And, and so it doesn't matter. Like, the rest of the world was uninteresting to me or didn't matter to me right. at all. But for some people, and especially as you get to, like, play more, as you have these, like, bigger adventures, the world gets larger than just, just this small town that you've been adventuring in. So you might go to the like main keep of that kingdom and the king there might say, Oh, there's all these problems like throughout my country. And so now you're exploring this country. And then maybe when you've explored the country, you get involved in some like giant international conflict or this war between nations. And suddenly you're like at the international level. And once demons start being like summoned to fight on one side of this war or angels on the other side, or beings from beyond the plains come and contact you, suddenly you're at this like huge cosmological interplanar level. And as it gets larger and larger and larger, it's helpful to have some ideas about how that all fits together. And so what you can do is either you can like homebrew your own campaign setting, which is what I do, or... That's what we usually do, yeah. Yeah. And so, all, and actually this is a little aside, all of the worlds that we do our adventuring in are spun off of the 
the world that we would adventure in in college together. That was my world that I brought to the table. And I was like, well, this is, this is the world that we're in. And it was really cool that we got to build it together and like people contributed different lore. And now like Dan runs a campaign and Matt runs a campaign that are, I don't run a campaign. Uh, Max, sorry. (laughs) I don't run shit. Yeah, I know. I, I'm aware. I've been working on Honey Heist 3 for about 18 months. The magnum opus. <laughs> the magnum opus. We'll never play again after that. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, gaming will be, there will be no more worlds to conquer. That's right. As it, as it were. As it were. All the worlds that we adventure in are like spun off of this this one original world that we, we played in in college. God, is that why they're all so shitty? Uh, no, they're fantastic. <laughs> I'll have you know, I received a review that I'm really good at creating really fleshed out worlds. Yeah, who said that? Your girlfriend? No, one of my other players. <laughs> my partner is not very interested in this particular aspect of my life. This is, this seems like it would be an issue because this is literally the most important thing in your life. <laughs> this is, this is the only thing I care about. I mean, that's basically <laughs> true. So it's nice that we have other things that we can do together. But if you don't want to homebrew your own, you can purchase a campaign setting or you can read the Wikipedia and it's basically the same. And you get this book and it tells you, well, this is what it's like to adventure in the Forgotten Realms Mm. where Faerun is the campaign setting. Or this is what it's like to adventure in Greyhawk. Or this is what it's like to adventure in Exandria, which is the setting from Critical Role. Yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't listen to Critical Role or watch it. We don't, we don't know anything about Critical Role, I but don't. we have to talk about it because it's like it's contemporary. Do you actually not know anything about it either? I actually, I know a decent amount. Like I know about the big things that happen because I watch other people's like analyses of what happens, and I watch the cartoon on on Amazon Prime. That's based on their campaign, but I have no interest in this. Uh, and I follow Matt Mercer on Twitter. I have no interest in this. But I don't. I just don't have the time to watch four hours of of gaming like a week when I could be gaming myself. Well, I know this guy who watches every. Sorry, Matt. I know this guy who watches every. Not you, Matt. Matt Mercer. Oh, yeah, sorry, Matt Mercer. Yeah. I know this guy who watches every episode of Critical Role. He follows it really closely. You know, is it is it the same person that I think you're talking about? And this guy is a big, big, major loser. Yeah, he, oh, okay, it's definitely the same person I'm talking. Hi, Matt. Max. Uh, Max, sorry. It's just, so listeners, I just, I have to be clear that the reason I keep getting mis- this mixed up is because in Earth 69, Matt, Max is called Matt. That's right. My name is actually Max. There are actually <laughs> only, there are only two names in Earth 69, Matt or Joe. And Max. No, 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 there is no Max. He's called Matt. Oh, I see. And so it's it's just confusing here. You all have so many names. I hate it. On Earth 1. I hate Earth 1. You thought this was just a bit for the beginning. This is going to be throughout the episode. We're always doing callbacks. Yeah, I forgot about it, actually. I thought I also thought it was just a bit for the beginning. Yeah, I know. Exactly. But, you know, now, now I've reminded you. So, you have all these worlds, right? And pretty soon, we're going to have Dragonlance and Spelljammer available for 5th edition, even though, even though these settings are pretty old. And you can... You can port the lore into 5th edition games from like Ravenloft or Dark Sun or any number of other settings that that exist that have not had supplements for 5th for edition published. But the campaign setting and some associated other books that talk about the lore and some novels in the case of like Forgotten Realms or, or Dragonlance, they establish 
the sort of like parameters of the world. So they tell you, well, what makes this world special? Well, what makes this world different? What about this world is the same or shared between other worlds? Except they don't do so explicitly. They tell you about their world. And if you look, if you like compare worlds, you can say, oh, well, I see how this world is different than, I see how Greyhawk is different from Faerun. Or I see how, you know, not to use a campaign setting analogy, but I can see how Middle Earth and Middle Earth um, and Dragonlance are different settings. They have different history. They have different ways that magic works. They have different ways that the the fantasy beings or like fantasy quote unquote races, fantasy ancestries, the way that they function. And that shows me that these are two distinct settings that even though they are different, they share certain qualities. They are alternate worlds, but there's some crossover. There's some things that seem to be universally true in all of these worlds. That's right. There are certain there's certain aspects of these that obtain among all of them, some that obtain among a certain, you know, proper subset of them, and some that are idiosyncratic to individual worlds that it's not being repeated. Idiosyncratic just meaning that um Hap- it happens it's only in that world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's only in that world, right? Exactly. Great. I'm sorry I'm using this like, you know, these huge words like uh, idiosyncratic. Well, I actually I invented a way of assigning assigning uh lengths to numbers like how many wanks or the style of wank lengths oh lengths say, length of I wank? wanks i heard wanks no lengths lengths of what well so you might you might wonder like how big is seven how big is i i don't know i have like seven pineapples well that's the thing you can use seven to count but it's very difficult yeah to, like you it's like you say, how big is seven? I don't know. He's seven, right? Seven big. Yeah, I just have seven pineapples here. They're nice and uh, chewy and bitter. Well, what you could do is take every natural number and assign it to a length of wire. Okay. And then you could say, well, how big is seven? And then you point at the length of wire. Okay. So I, I could say I have seven pineapples if I have that length of wire amount of pineapples. Uh, No. Oh. You're using seven to count, but then when you ask for the size of seven... Oh, the size would, of seven. You would use the length of wire. And so is this a universal measure of length? Sure. So, like, seven is seven times as long as one. That's right. And 14 is fourteen twice. is twice as long as seven. That's right. The wires have... We've figured this out ahead of time. All right. All right. I think this sounds like a pointless exercise, but good to know. <laughs> Well, we could rigidify it across worlds. We could rigidify it. That's right. We take ours and say it's true everywhere. And that would be... So, So, for example, Earth 69, 7 has a length. That's right. It doesn't have, like, units. It's like, I wouldn't go and say, like, oh, 7 inches, 7 miles, 7... Well, you could do that, too, but 7 itself has but a length. But 7 itself has a length. And it's this length of wire. And it's that length of wire. So I could come here to Earth 1 and I could say, hey, y'all, this is how long 7 is. Now you better start using it this way. You could colonize Earth-1's measurement system with this method. With this method. And the result would be that we have made this rigid, we have rigidified it across two worlds, Earth-1 and Earth-69. It holds across two different worlds. It's the same across two worlds. But what's important is that it's the same, but it's being projected from ours. Ooh, so it's not intrinsic to Earth-1. It didn't start in Earth-1. It is not a property that is fundamental to Earth-1. It's fundamental to ours. 
and we have exported it. Yeah, when we say we're rigidifying, when we say we're rigidifying something, we're taking sort of ours and then projecting it outwards to other places. Great. So someday soon, we will have conquered all Earths and made them measure numbers in the same way as we That's do. That's right. Okay, so I have a bunch. This of, is going to be very inconvenient for the mantis shrimps of Earth 142. I have a. Was it 142? I think it was 130 something. It's definitely 142. 130, 130 something is where everybody is a uh, where people are moist towelettes, mm. not mantis shrimps. I don't believe there is such an Earth. <laughs> it's it's Earth 137. Anyway, so I wrote a huge number of notes. Yes, I'm just going to read some of these, and you can interrupt me. Really. And, uh, well, we'll just see. Wait, are you going to explain why we started talking about The Wire? Is this, does this make any... No, this has nothing, this has nothing to do with... What? <laughs> with the topic. <laughs> why are we talking about it? What are you doing, Matt? I just wanted to, I was a discovery. Of what? <laughs> that I found a way to give, length, assign lengths to natural numbers. Oh my gosh. Matt, what are we doing? Okay, so, we did The Odyssey a few weeks ago, right, Joey? I just want to be clear, as we mentioned before, Matt... And Joe from Earth 69, we have no podcasting experience. This is like, this is our first time. No, that was an expert podcast move, you know? Anyway, <laughs> um, oh, keep them guessing. Keep the audience on their toes. Keep them guessing. Keep them on their toes, you know? We did The Odyssey a few weeks ago. We did. And so we're gonna, we're talking about possible worlds. And, and because this movie's coming out, you want me to like give you all these details on alternate worlds, possible worlds, whatever, as it relates to The Odyssey. Or no, as it relates in general to our podcast, but Theodicy is important, I should say. Theodicy is like, it exists. Oh, wait, Theodicy is coming out after this, though. Oh, it is? Well, whatever. We're going to talk about Theodicy in a few weeks. (laughs) But. So if you don't know what Theodicy is, wait a couple weeks and you'll find out. Well, whatever. It's Okay, uh, maybe I'll just skip this. Basically, the use, <laughs> the use, just say, it, just say, the it. use of possible worlds in contemporary philosophy is sort of a conceptual tool that traces more or less to Leibniz. Okay, all right. And he was the first modern philosopher to explore the concept of theodicy or God's justice, right, in depth. And one way that you could defend God as being just in light of the reality of evil and suffering in our world. Um, is to argue that we actually, as a matter of fact, live in the best of all possible worlds. I see. So theodicy, this question of, is God just, given all the shit that happens, his defense of this is to say, well, God is just because this might seem shitty, but you should see like Earth 2 and Earth 4 and Earth 69, where it's a totalitarian anti-podcast regime, like, Earth one must be the best of all possible worlds because our God is just. If one thing were different, the world would somehow or other turn out to be a worse place, like all things considered, ultimately. Got it. Now, this is obviously wrong. Yes, this is a stupid argument. Um, And Voltaire parodies this in Candide. Have you read Candide or listened listened to the soundtrack for the musical, the Leonard Bernstein musical? I have, you know, this is going to be really embarrassing because the only, the third thing I care about is musical theater. That's right. And I have not listened to Candy. It's actually. I've listened, I tried to get into it. It was like, I need to sit down and listen to it again. It's actually my favorite one. Is it really? It is, yeah. All right. So Candide parodies this. Candide parodies this. I believe it's Professor Pangloss in Candide, who's like Candide's teacher, who says, all is for the best and this the best of all possible worlds. So Don't ask me. I, I just said I have no idea what any of this is. Well, whatever. About. So, I mean, Candide's a parody of this Leibnizian view. 
Anyway, here's the skinny, brother. Here's how it works for Leibniz. Tell me. What's the word? God, uh, you know, him. I'm familiar. Surveys his immortal brains and sees... Multiple? His immortal brains. Well, he's got, I don't know, brain, whatever, singular. I, I don't... Is this a Leibniz thing? He thinks he has, like... Uh, yeah, Leibniz's big thing is God has two brains. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> How many brains does Earth One God have? I don't know, but uh, God surveys his mind, his intellect, and sees all the ways that things might go, right? Like, all the maximally complex sort of descriptions of the way the world might be, or we might think of uh-huh. them as, like, super blueprints of a world. So, God has all these blueprints of the world, and he selects the best of these, the best possible yes. of these. Um, now, Leibniz might mean something different than we think. He seems to think that what the best is is, like, a balance of a sort of a diversity and complexity of phenomena with moral goodness. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you could have a more interesting world that was morally worse, or you could have a morally better world that was, like, intellectually inferior or something. Ah, yes. That's kind of the early modern origin of possible yes. worlds talk. Leibniz. Leibniz. And Voltaire. And Voltaire, I guess. Um, modern day, uh, you know, we could talk about, like, Kripke or Hillary Putnam or any of these people, but I don't want to talk about them. I'm just going to say contemporary philosophers. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to name drop these people so that I can I can say how little I care about them. Um, do I care very... I don't know if I care about them. I mean, like, they're very important modern yeah. philosophers, but it's not the same as it was in the old days where it's like, mm. there's a sort of world-shaking quality. Like, nobody who's not a professional philosopher knows anything about these people. Got it. Well, I'm glad that you, you thank you for showing off your chops. Everyone, you can now believe that Matt is a professional philosopher. That's right. Well, no. I Well, what? Yeah. Anyway, you run a philosophy podcast with over 500 listeners. 600 so. listeners. Contemporary philosophers <laughs> do not use. That is over 500. Like, don't act like I was wrong. We got a million listeners. It's over. We have over six listeners, a.k.a. a million. It's, it could be, you know, <laughs> who knows? Contemporary philosophers are not using this sort of concept of possible worlds in the same way. And it's much, mm. in a way, it's much closer, I think, to our like ordinary intuitive way of thinking about like alternate dimensions almost. Yeah. They're trying to use possible worlds, talk, alternate worlds, whatever, to give an account of the semantics, meaning, truth, whatever, of certain terms. Uh-huh. Okay. And we're going to call these modal operators. So modal operators are just like terms. So like, for example, um, if we're talking about like different campaign settings, in all of these campaign settings that you have, Eberron, Spelljammer, Dragonlance, Greyhawk, you have elves, yeah, you have yeah, dwarves, yeah. you have orcs. Those could be modal operators. And so the question is, what do these were or it's like no so elves, we would say wars, this spells if, if elves are in whatever. every campaign setting we would yeah. say well you know in these D settings necessarily there are elves necessarily necessity is a modal operator impossibility possibility oh, okay. these are all modal operators all mode right. modus the way a sentence is true that's all that we mean mm-hmm. so it's like i could say there are elves here mm-hmm. that's a sentence um, it's a proposition. Yeah. I could, but it doesn't have a modal operator. But it doesn't have anything operating on it. Like the, it's not. It's not telling me the way that that sentence is true. Could be mm-hmm. possibly the case, or actually the case, or necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. 
those are all ways that the sentence could be true, right? I see. That's what makes it modal, so, like modus, like way. Got it. So actually, there are elves in every campaign setting published by Wizards of the Coast, but that's not necessarily, like it's not by necessity true. Like Wizards of the Coast could, in theory, publish a campaign setting where there are no elves. Right. And that would... Right, exactly. That would... So... Yeah. That would establish both that it is not necessarily true and that it's not actually true anymore because suddenly there's a campaign setting that doesn't have elves. Right. Well, okay. So it would depend on the context you're talking about. So like, let's say we're in the real world right now. Yeah. Um, we would say... All right. So Earth Earth 69, the realest of worlds. <laughs> we would say, actually, it's the case that there are... Okay, let's bracket the fact that there aren't elves in every setting. Fuck it. All right. Because I didn't know that. But... um, There are. Well, you said that there aren't anymore. What? No, no, no. If, I'm saying if, like if in some... Oh, okay, but there are actually. Okay. In Earth 379, there are no more elves because Wizards of the Coast process published an anti-elf or an, an elf-free setting because of the um, the anti-elf racism that is very troublingly widespread in Earth 379. We would say actually there are elves in every setting or whatever, but it's possible that there yeah. could be... Got it settings without elves in them but like if you're looking and possible possible is another modal operator right if you're looking because it yeah, well, yeah just quickly if you're looking internal to the context of like these settings treating these settings as though they were the worlds we're investigating right like the actual settings there are we would say necessarily it's true that there are elves in every setting not in the sense that like yeah. oh they could have written things differently but just taking what we're surveying as all the different settings uh-huh because there are elves in every setting it would be necessary in this context yeah but like let's say dwarves are only in two of the five settings well then it would just be possible i'll give you an example there are in dragonlance so this is the world of kryn kender for those who are familiar are widely regarded as one of the worst fantasy beings like ever developed because they're, what is a kender that's a great question there apparently they're really fucking annoying much like like halflings or gnomes, they're much shorter. So it's like I think they're like three to four feet tall. They only exist in Kryn, so it's the world of Dragonlance, which is coming out. One of the, like their main qualities about them is that they're kind of like mischievous and sarcastic, and they like to play pranks, and they're also very curious. And they don't have a concept of ownership, or even sometimes maybe like object permanence that. They see things and they're like, oh, well, if I see this thing, I can just take it and like put it in my pocket. And while this is an interesting kind of like theory or like uh, culture that, that has been built up and like maybe we should really be questioning the notion of private property that we seem so wedded to. But most players just use this as an opportunity to run around being a dick and like taking other people's shit. Oh, uh, they're like the borrowers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Kender only exists in Kryn, for example. Or they might exist in like somebody's homebrew world. I see. So use them as your example, because now we're like tying it in. No. <laughs> Fine. Yeah, no, okay, so we could say that like let's say we're dealing with a concept of necessity and possibility that's only to do yeah. with what's, you know, actually the case about the structure of these books. Yeah. So like let's say that uh, we want to understand what obtains in every book, mm -hmm. what obtains in some books, what obtains in no books, whatever. Yeah. So let's call this book, let's call this uh, setting necessity, setting impossibility, setting possibility. Kender yeah. are setting possible races because they appear in only some of the settings. Yeah. Elves are setting necessary because they're going to appear in every setting that there is. Yeah. And, you know, um, some class that 
couldn't be formulated because like mechanically problematic or whatever would be setting impossible. What would be setting impossible? Then? Um, you could say like, okay, there's a race that begins with 10 and zero HP. What? Yeah. That's why it's impossible. It involves a contradiction. It begins with what? 10 HP and zero HP. Oh, because that's just impossible. It's a, right. Exactly. So this is a, this is a, well, this would be a, a class, I guess, but like, let's say that it's racial trait, whatever this would be. Would be that it begins with 10 HP and 0 HP. Yeah. That would be me- that is mechanically impossible to realize in the context of the rules because it involves a contradiction. Yes. It involves a violation of the law of non-contradiction. And so it's going to be setting impossible. You know, this is sort of an interesting point that you've brought up is that is impossible because of the way that the rules of the game are structured. Right. And this gives us an interesting way for examining alternate worlds and examining the possibility within alternate worlds because in Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons itself is a game. It has a series of mechanics. And the the mechanics are what are the game. But it's tied and woven into all of these different settings that share the underlying mechanics and might change a couple of things. They tweak a few things. So like Dark Sun, for example, is a campaign setting. And the way magic works in Dark Sun is different. Right you draw magic from the like from other living creatures or other living beings or plants or like from the very life of the planet that's how you feel your spells as opposed to drawing just like latent magic in the world or in forgotten realms it's called the weave you pull magic from the weave and you manipulate it so the mechanics might change slightly but the underlying mechanics are mostly the same for these um these different campaign settings when we're looking at different campaign settings the mechanics of Dungeons and Dragons the game can help us answer the question of what is fundamental what is necessarily true to be playing Dungeons and Dragons as opposed to playing something else right and so we could say we have these sort of internal concepts of necessity like we could call them Uh I called it setting necessity but you could have different ones but those themselves are contingent it's only based on the way that they've put out the rule books so like external to the rule system of rules we find that the rules are contingent, but internal to the system of rules, there's certain stabilities across mm-hmm. settings that would be then uh, hold across all of them. So that were they're necessary yeah. in the setting necessary sense I've, I've explained. Yeah. So when you say that the rules externally are contingent, you're just saying that outside of the game world, like in the real world, Earth 69, Earth 1, where what have you. The like somebody just made up the rules, right? And they might have had good reason for putting the rules in a certain way. Like we might imagine that there was some level of game design put into this, or depending on how much you like Wizards of the Coast, you might say, "Oh, there was zero game design or zero play testing, or like no thought went into this at all." Um, <coughs> monks, and um, so that's what you mean by contingent. Right, it's is con- that- yeah, it's contingent in the sense that it's it, it didn't have to happen that way. It seems yeah. like right. I mean, it seems yeah. plausible enough intuitively uh-huh. to, to say yes. that there, there there could have been you know they could have drafted yeah. this this stuff differently, so it would have exactly. been exactly. And they just happened not to. Thereby, it is contingent, or that's the way it seems anyway to us. But who knows? Maybe if one thing about the rules were different, then we might be living in the worst possible timeline. That's true. I mean, it could be that you know, there's act. It's actually impossible that anything could be different. But we don't really. That's not a popular position. Yeah, well, because it's stupid. You're stupid. 
Are you? Do you defend this position? What do you, no, I don't. Oh, okay. I, so. I do think you're stupid. However. Oh. Oh. Okay. This is unrelated. Yeah, it's unrelated. Side comment. Okay, Joe. We got to get back to Earth sixty nine so I can make sweet love to you. Yeah, I um, you know, I can feel the the my heart is dying because I haven't made love in over an hour. <laughs> You're a sex addict. <laughs> this is well, it's not a you know, addiction is really kind of like a socially ch- contingent category, and that's on, true on our Earth, it's not it's not a disease addiction because our you know we literally will die if we don't have sex every like three hours. That's and true. We start yeah. we start to get the kind of jumpy after an hour. That's right. My body's filling up with my chi, and I'm going to explode. See, on in our planet or in, in our world, we don't we don't become wiser with with uh, the chi in our spine. We uh, we explode. So anyway, we got to get back. We gotta we gotta have sex. Well, I mean, I didn't say we were gonna do that. We're gonna make loves. Yeah, whatever that means. Socially contingent. It could mean it could mean I'm gonna murder you. Yeah, it's true. You know, if you re- if you really want to talk about what if you want to learn more about what we think about what sex is, you can listen to our episodes on virginity. Oh yeah, that was a good episode actually. Those are very good episodes, very body. I thought I thought you like the listener could learn a lot from listening to those. I think they can learn a lot. I just want to, you know, be warned, we say fuck a lot more than you might expect for a podcast about the Virgin Mary. Um yeah, we well we were in person so we were swearing more. <laughs> That's, you know, I think that's true. Things are a little bit more tame. And, oh, I shouldn't, uh, this, uh, we didn't do this podcast. The other Matt and Joe did from Earth One. That's right. Matt and Joe did it on Earth One who hate each other. Yeah, they they do hate each other. But there's also like a bit of a will they won't they. <laughs> okay. It's a dynamic. This is Matt. The Ross and Rachel of, wait, no, we didn't even do a wrap up. This what is Matt. <laughs> oh, is it, well, where I come from, this is what a wrap up is. What do you think a wrap up is? I think that. You know, some listener, you know, we don't know what podcasts are. Like, what even is a podcast? What's a pod and how do you cast it? But I would imagine on Earth One, maybe one of us should synthesize what it is we talked about today. Well, I can. I guess I can take a crack at it. Give it a shot. You know, you're, you're really talented and really good at things. That's right. So I was talking about the way in which invariance across contexts can be an important way of thinking about things, especially if we mm-hmm. want to understand the meaning of certain terms that are sort of weird. Right? Stop clicking your cube. Uh, I was thinking about I was thinking about invariance. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. Cross contexts. And you were talking about the way in which certain things are or are not variant or invariant within the sort of settings that they they give to us that they give to the players of dungeons and dragons Mm -hmm. so i don't know i mean what could be synthesized with this well uh one way is we're going to probably talk more about how dms can make use of this sort of Mm -hmm. concepts when they're thinking about designing a world Mm -hmm. but it's always attentive to think about the sort of background structure that is constraining your deliberations about how you want to structure your world right yeah So, like, if they're offering you this series of settings, like, let's say there's five settings. Yeah. And, you know, they have all these cool different quirks and flavors, but certain things are stable. Like, you know, maybe orcs are evil in every one of them. Mm -hmm. That might give you pause when you actually go to design your world. So, like, if you're thinking in terms of what's variant and invariant, that can actually key you into certain stale things Mm -hmm. that you yourself could uh, sort of wipe away. When you want to create your own your own settings that have your own flavor, I think those that's a fantastic point, and I I really like that you tied in this very theoretical discussion that seems almost pointless to have, yeah. into something that people might actually use. That's right. In addition to like picking a setting and like looking for the variance or invariance, and then designing your own, 
I think that it can, you when, you when we think about this, the thing that I want to talk about, maybe we'll have to save this for next week, is also how do you present to your players the world it is that you have chosen, whether that's an established campaign setting or whether it's a homebrew world. How do you, using these ideas about alternate worlds, about things that are possibly necessarily actually true or impossible to be true, how can you use these concepts to decide what is the essential information that you want your players to get? Right. That's kind of a, you know, we might have to come back next week, Matt. We might, I have a lot of things I want to say, actually, about this. I mean, there are other modalities rather than the sort of the traditional ones, you know, necessity and possibility. Yeah. There's We could talk about, like, something is obligatory, something's permissible, or something's impermissible. Those are other modalities you can attach to sentences, right? I could, These are just, like, words that I've never heard before. Yeah. Well, maybe you haven't. That's incredible. I mean, you could say like, look, someone did some action. Someone executed some action. You could say it's obligatory that they execute an action. Mm -hmm. It's permissible that they execute an action or it's impermissible that they execute an action. Yeah. So like these sort of moralistic terms also have a a modal status that is interesting Mm -hmm. to investigate. And that that might be something we, we touch on in the next session too. Wow. Well, you know, I can't wait to come back to Earth One and and try this podcasting thing again. But for now for now this is matt 69 this is joe 69 and now you know 69 all right happy happy mother's day happy happy mother's day everybody Woo! that's it also happy birthday to me i turned i turned 28 i'm 11 congratulations